Hi, everybody. Welcome to DevQuest. This is Alec Reynolds. I'm standing in for Dustin LeBlanc for this episode. He'll be back next episode. Um, and with me, I am joined by Solomon Gifford from Contegix slash Blackmesh. Um, Solomon actually was with us a, a what, few months ago, Solomon? Yes. Nice. Yeah. So today we're actually going to be talking a little bit about another topic that Solomon is the domain master, should you say, or a uh, uh, maybe a, I don't know, what, what would you say, Solomon? I feel like you've walked this path for many years now. Um, many of us kind of have. Like there's a journey around continuous integration that I think our whole community has been going through as web developers for over a decade. I mean, this this goes back to the early 2000s, to the, to the dawn of software programming, really. But um, for web developers, I think this really starts in the aughts. And I was curious just to talk to you a little bit about, well, first of all, what does continuous integration and continuous deployment mean to you? So obviously it looks very different to, to many different you know, solutions. You have containerized solutions, you have on-prem solutions, you have you know, panels, right? So, um, you know, solutions uh, like, um, you know, Pantheon and Acquia, who, where you, you upload code and it, it does orchestration. So CICD can look like a lot of different things, but they have some, some specific components. Um, first of all, there's, you're providing it, you know, your, 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 your raw code. And so there's some, some sort of um, RCS, a part, a part of that. And then there's some stages of, of testing now, not not all solutions have it, but uh, there's some you know some testing that goes along with that, and then you have a release stage where it is bundling what you've just tested into a form that can be then uh, deployed, and obviously there's a lot of other pieces to um, the entire you know DevOps process, but the CI/CD portion is really about taking the art of uh, taking your raw code, turning it into artifacts that then can be deployed. And the area that I'm especially interested in is the security aspect of that. So when we start talking about um, that process, how can we secure that process both in the environment, but also just as importantly, securing the code itself. Yeah. And I think we'll get a chance to geek out more about the security aspect um, later, because that's definitely something that's always interested me. I mean, a lot of the work I've done as a consultant in the past, and obviously a lot of the things that we care about in making Lando revolve around keeping secure environments. Um, I think that you've written a lot and thought a lot about the changes and how we're thinking about security and how that applies to CICD. But kind of like taking a step back, I guess, for a second, too. So, yeah, so you're thinking of CICD. We have this concept of code. We have different ways to build out our applications. We're building this build artifact that actually is the thing that eventually will get deployed. Um, maybe like another facet of this is, you know, how how did you get started with CICD? Like, what was the first project that you actually applied a CICD tool set to? It probably goes back to my first job out of college. And when I say my first job out of college, I was a professor for a while. So it was the first job outside of that professorship. When I first arrived at the organization, it was a nonprofit, um, very large nonprofit in terms of its number of users. But they were doing development on the local desktops and then deploying directly to production. And so a significant amount of work was actually being done in, in production to, uh, <laughs> to to debug, right? You take that code live and it's not working. And of course, we're using SVNs. So we were taking individual files and there was no concept really of all of this code works together, right? It was individual pieces. And so um, establishing a development environment was like stage one. And um, at that tool, at that time, we didn't use Jenkins or or some of the other good automation that we have today. Um, but we started writing scripts, and those were build scripts. And so we had a, a process where on our dev environment, we could clone the entire, well, we first of all, we moved to Git. But we could, but we could um, clone our entire environment on that same machine to another you know, parallel environment for, um, for a, a, you know, a feature branch or for individual developers. Um, we created a, a pipeline process for um, for taking that live to production. So we had a script that we would run on a um, a sample production. We called it a staging server, but it really wasn't staging. It was part of the production cluster, and we would pull our code live 
to that location, do the testing. And then we had this magical script called script uh, sync cluster, sync cluster. And essentially cluster. Yeah. It took the code from, you know, from that server to the other ones. And so that was like my very beginning, uh, you know, steps into this. And it's not that we weren't against other tools. It was really that, you know, we're running on a small budget and, uh, we'll talk about this more, but one of the one of the principles in all of this is just continuous improvement, right? And so, always do something better than you did the last time before. And so that was that was our first steps into that. Um, once I uh, started working for the current company, then CI/CD became kind of my focus. And so we had a tool called PTL or Push to Live, which was centered around GitLab and uh, used Capistrano for deployments. For that, we really didn't have a lot of testing, but it did give you know the, the user the ability just to worry about code and pushing it live. And so that was more of a deployment. It was less of the testing and, and build process. It was more of just a deployment tool. But again, it was starting to get me into that, into that realm. Yeah, that really resonates. I mean, uh, it's funny one of the things that uh, that you said that I think is really relevant to some of the work we do at Lando, um, you, were, you were talking about local development kind of being stage one. One of the things I hear a lot from people that use Lando these days is that Lando has kind of been this first step into CICD for them. Uh, and I think that's because to have you know this idea of continuous improvement, right? Like the idea that we are continuously working on things and that we're continuously able to actually integrate in a given feature branch of work, um, a a given piece of work, whatever you, however you think about that, even if you're not using feature branches or however else you use your version control to organize your deployment, your development, um, having a local environment that you can just play around with and that you, that is completely separate from some, you know, server environment, which for all of us, I think started our careers in the aughts. You remember SSHing into some server and working on it. Um, sometimes that might even be a production server, and you were literally in there in Vim uh, messing around with it. We were talking about web, web dev and SSH, uh, SFTP clients that would mount, and you had all these other ways of moving move, moving code around. It's like, what, did you use like FileZilla or CyberDuck or like, you know, like, yeah, what was your, your SFTP client? Yeah. And then, the, then the, the, you know, the, the stragglers were like, no, I'm going to stay with SCP. We're just going to do it the right way. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that you find with, you know, just even if it's Lando or starting with the process, you're creating a lower barrier to entry. And that's one of the um, you know, principles of CICD or one of the values of CID, CICD is that it, it allows you to start whether the same person starting a new project or a new person being added to the team and, and, and getting integrated. It really lowers that barrier to entry. If you're a one-man shop and you've set everything up one time on your box and that's the only thing you're going to work work on, you don't get as much value. There's still value, but you don't get as much value from that that startup, if you will. But once you start putting that investment into that CI/CD pipeline, then you start getting that value as you add additional people to a project, first of all, or as you repeat that process for another project. Yeah, it feels like CI/CD for a lot of teams feels like it's a process of maturation as they scale um, and as they just work on more complicated projects, right? Uh, and I think a lot of us, I mean, I know my introduction into CI/CD came really early with um, very, very early on. The hosting provider Pantheon had a uh, had Jenkins just basically built in, like you could actually access the Jenkins control panel from inside their product. And they, they actually took that away eventually, which was probably a really good idea. It was way too much complexity. I'm sure they had so many support issues with that. But I remember doing some really basic automation in there and just getting used to the idea that, oh, hey, I can deploy this. You know, I can just do a Git push up to my hosting provider and have stuff happen um, was a whole new concept. And it took years really for the, the next stage of that to play out. Um, and in that, you know, part of that was time. And we're, I think we'll talk about that a little bit just in a second. It's like the maturation of CICD services, the idea that like, you didn't have to install your own Jenkins instance or manage, um, you know, write your own scripts like you guys were doing uh, way back in the day. So part of that was just time. 
But the other piece was just complexity uh, as, you know, working on a, say, Drupal 6 or Drupal 7 project or a WordPress project back in the late aughts or the early um, 20, 20 teens uh, didn't really require yeah, really complicated builds. The uh, testing was just not as dominant in the the mind of developers at that point, unless you were somebody that was, you know, far beyond my experience level um, you know, over a decade ago. So, yeah, so I feel like there's been a lot like that maturation and complexity um, has gone alongside like the maturation and just how we think about these things. And two things that are like requirements for for automation and CICD ultimately is a form of automation um, is uh, documentation and standardization. Um, if you think about a, a maturation of any CI/CD project, it starts with documenting. If you don't know what you're doing and you can't write it down because it's not the same every time, then there's no way you can automate it, right? And so, you know, there was a lot of a lot of those early days, including that, you know, that project that I said I came into. There was no defined process, right? There was no documentation for how it was done. Every single time, it was a brand new exploration of how are we going to take this to production? And so documentation is that first step. Standardization being the second. Can we do this the same time, the same way every time? And as soon as you can determine that there is a standardized way, then automation is the third step, right? And so the uh, the fact that, that Pantheon used, used Jenkins for a while actually really resonated with me. We did the same thing at Blackmesh with Cascade. Our first version of Cascade was a wrapper around Jenkins and GitLab. And we said, all right, here's your source control and here's your, your automation engine. And then we, here's you know interface that kind of knows how a Drupal site or a WordPress site works. And, and it would actually inject jobs into Jenkins to do different, you know, automations. And so again, you know, from that perspective, we're recognizing the pattern, documenting the pattern, right? So that's that step one. And then determining, okay, how can we standardize that? What are the what are the patterns that are the repeatable patterns, standardization? And then okay, how do we automate that? So that that's uh, people come to me all the time here at Kendijix asking me to, how can we automate this process? Right? My first thing is Go document it. Go write it down. <laughs> if you can write it down, then we can essentially look at that and say, then I'm going to ask you, what are the exceptions? What are the deviations? Are there multiple processes for that same thing? And then, then we can start talking about standardization. Once you have it standardized, now I can automate it. I think if you're listening to this and you're you're like, what are what are Solomon and Alec really talking about? Like they're just, you know, they're talking about these Jenkins things, CICD, uh, all this is kind of going over my head. That would be my takeaway right there. I think we could just end the episode and I'd be happy. <laughs> Document, standardize, automate. Those three steps, that applies to so much. Uh, just so much in just running any organization. Um, yeah, like that applies way beyond what we're talking about uh, just here in, in, in web development. Um, dropping some real wisdom here, Solomon. I like it. <laughs> um, yeah, let's, let's dig in a little bit. So yeah, it sounds like it's interesting that you're saying that um, when you were building Cascade, you were almost running along the same track that sounds like Pantheon ran back in their early days as well. Um, maybe let's dig in a little bit about kind of the history of CICD tooling. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Jenkins, and it's maybe for some of our listeners that aren't really familiar with Jenkins. I mean, I, I know it's, you know, at, I think it has still has over 13% of the quote-unquote market share, you know, depending on whose survey you look at, um, in CICD tooling. So it's still an extremely popular tool, despite being almost 20 years old now, I think. But yeah, do, do you want to just give kind of a description of what Jenkins is uh, and maybe kind of what makes it different in today's CICD tool landscape? Yeah, Jenkins was built off a project, I think it was called Hudson, and um, essentially was was you know an open source project um, that became closed source. Jenkins became a, a fork of that. Um, but essentially, Jenkins wasn't really meant to push a pipeline. It was the concept of a pipeline or a sequence of events wasn't really the thing that it was trying to do. Instead, it was trying to be a control panel to run jobs. And with, with that... Um, you know, they, they had the concept of a runner, which means you can have this agent that's sitting out on some machine and the control, the Jenkins, the control center 
can, can essentially run commands remotely. And with that, a community started being built around it where people said, okay, how are we going to do this um, in, a, in a Java environment? Java was one of the big areas where um, uh, Jenkins was, um, was, was popular at the beginning. How do we pull things out of source code? How can we push things back into source code? So all of these type of steps started becoming, um, each individual one of those became little components. And so the Jenkins community started building these building blocks. How do we do this little piece? And how do we do this little piece? And how do we do this other little piece? And so permissions became an issue, and so there was a permissions plugin that was built. And um, even you know, with more modern um, uh, technologies, you know, coming forth, they're like, okay, so how can we connect to an AWS instance? How can we push to an S3 bucket? So each one of these little automation patterns became something that was a reproducible piece of automation, and. Um, and the Jenkins community essentially started pooling all these different little components of, of automation together to build their pipelines. So while Jenkins itself, for many years, didn't actually have a prescriptive pipeline, it just had all the little steps, and you had to still configure it. And so if I gave you a Drupal project, for example, and took, gave you Jenkins and said, all right, go automate it, you're like, well, I have all these generic steps. I know how to check out code. I know how to commit code back. I know how to run something you know, on some server. But it has no knowledge of what the code is. It has no knowledge of process. You have to add all of that logic layered on top of it. And uh, again, there was a lot of plugins. There's a lot of capabilities. But that first, you know, that first wave of, of Jenkins was really about identifying repeatable tasks, the uh, documentation, you know, standardization and, and automation. So enough things were documented to be standard that these little patterns became components of that pipeline. And then it was given to as a blank slate. And so a lot of people will jump into, um, I've talked to people who say, yeah, we'll do that with Jenkins. But the thing is, is if Jenkins doesn't, you know, solve that specific piece of the problem, you're going to be writing some automation or trying to to back you know do something to make it work, uh, square peg round hole type scenario, and so that that's something that you know became some of its downside is it really didn't have this idea of process. Now Jenkins since has introduced this concept of pipelines, which allows you to essentially string your actions together in 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 a YAML based format. And um, and that that's definitely a a step in the right direction, but it still natively doesn't have the concept of prescriptive process, and it's more based on all right. You still have to write those sequence of actions. I think it has persisted really because it just has recognized so many different patterns, those little blocks of patterns, and so if the if any other tool that comes forth uh, doesn't solve the problem. You always can go back to Jenkins and get it done. And so that's one of the things about Jenkins that, that, you know, that is enduring, if you will, is just the, the flexibility. Um, but then it's kind of like Drupal. I mean, if you really think about it, Drupal can do a whole lot, but you've got to invest a lot to make it do a lot. And so it's not like jumping onto Wix.com and setting up your website and putting in your credit card, right? It's, it's more than that with Drupal to get a website up and going, but you can do so much more. Same thing with Jenkins. Yeah, classic open source community trade-offs. If I was going to kind of like, you know, pick out some of the advantages and disadvantages out of what you just said, advantages, you know, you have this huge established set of different tasks uh, that other people have already written, different modules, different th ways to extend Jenkins and craft it to your will. Uh, so pretty much any project, any organization can make something work with Jenkins. Uh, downside, you're waiting for the community to basically evolve these different concepts. So you're talking about the concept of pipelines and stringing tasks together as being something that's newer to Jenkins. And that's something that's integral to, to most modern CICD tool sets. So yeah, that's I think that's a great example of something where it's like maybe that took a little bit longer in the the Jenkins ecosystem. And if you were somebody that had to tie those things together back in the early days before that was really baked in, it was probably really frustrating. It took a lot of developer time. I do remember going to a DrupalCon. I forget if it was Boston or Chicago, 
But there was a presentation on Jenkins, and I was just enthralled. I was just so excited to get in there and see how, how this was being used to do a deployment. So I don't want to take away from Jenkins and imply that it's old and old hat. It is still, you know, it still has a lot of value today for a lot of, a lot of workloads. Totally, um, yeah. But at the same time, um, especially in the Drupal community, we have moved a little bit past that in, in many, in many use cases. Yeah. And I'm always surprised, you know, when I talk to folks, um, or, you know, I, uh, have a lot of friends that work at different stages of startups in the Bay area. Um, and I'm always surprised at how many organizations still do use Jenkins. Um, but it is, I, I think like most software communities, particularly ones that operate in the spaces that I think you and I operate in, where maybe we're not focusing on a highly custom application stack. We're maybe managing many different applications that are different, but similar-ish. It just doesn't make sense to make that investment in crafting this CICD solution specifically to the app. And ironically, we use Jenkins to build Cascade, which is our deployment tool for our customers. So it's, it's it doesn't go away. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And, it, and that seems like the kind of application where I would almost expect that, where it's like, okay, we need, we want to address a, a specific concern for our customers and craft this thing. Um, Jenkins is a great choice in that context. Uh, but kind of thinking beyond that. So, you know, I, I think of the evolution of CICD providers in sort of three different waves with Jenkins being, you know, the progenitor, the first um, real popular CICD solution used widely by web developers. But then I kind of think of this second wave that is kind of when I like to say, like when CICD got sassy, when people started having hosted uh, for sale, I can buy it by the month or I can buy it by the task runner minute, uh, solutions that you and I can just go and look at and go spin up in a second. Uh, we don't have to do any maintenance work on or worry about the servers. And like key among those, there's lots of different services in this category, but key among those in my mind are Travis CI and Circle CI. Um, I was curious if you kind of had any opinions or kind of your overview of what the advantages and disadvantages of that generation of providers. I think the, again, you, you picked up on the SaaS piece, right? It's that decentralization a lot of organizations, it takes them a long time internally to spin up a box or to get that Jenkins you know, solution provisioned. And you've got to go through multiple layers of, of justification for that expense. And yes, Jenkins is free, but the server itself and these organizations you know, have to go through security policies and all of the other red tape. And so the SaaS providers really provided you know, a solution to that. Hey, drop in a credit card. The company, can, you can go get that reimbursed. And it's a small amount of money and you can go solve a problem. And, hey, if you can justify that, hey, it's solved this much time or, or you know, save this much time, then you can essentially go back to your, to your company and say, hey, this, this actually was a, a value add. You know, let's go ahead and, and make this part of our SOP moving forward. So it really broke down. I mean, it's, it's, this, it's doing the same thing that, you know, AWS is doing to infrastructure, right? It, it's commoditizing it. And so... Um, it's that same model. Let's let's try to commoditize CI/CD so that we don't have to have this huge discussion around every single you know new CI/CD implementation. It's it's kind of um, you just drop in a few you know a few coins and you have it. You can start have you know you can start you know running through. They essentially had to do the same thing though in terms of patterns, right? It's they still had to to to, to focus on certain patterns. And I know that. Travis, for example, kind of piggybacked on on GitHub for many, you know, for much of its existence, and uh, that was because it saw a use case where that pattern matched, right? And the, the cool thing is that it focused on CI/CD instead of focusing on a control panel for generic automation. It really kind of had more of a CI/CD first mentality, which is the first time we really had that that type of a solution. I remember like my first contact with Travis and Circle. I, initially, it was Travis. I mean, I think of Travis as being kind of the the first time that these solutions got really popularized. I think mostly in the open source community, just because it was free for open source right. projects. Which good move, uh, good move, <laughs> Travis, and thank you for doing that for so long. Um, but just like the 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 revelation of being able to set up this pretty 
easy to understand manifest file that, yeah, could be really annoying to debug. Um, the process of debugging and setting up a CI CD tool, I think, is like one of the biggest hurdles that I hear people complain about, where they're like, okay, what's the magic incantation I have to cast? to make this darn thing actually work <laughs> and like, you know, keep on casting it. And it's like, oh, no, fizzle doesn't work. I have to redeploy it out to the CICD server and like wait for it to, to see if it does work. It's like, oh, no, broke again, broke again. Finally, you get that green light, you know, build pass uh, that you're like, OK, great. I, I actually got my config right. Um, that seems to be those, those cycles of having to deploy something to a remote service that's not under control and maybe has really long queue times that you're waiting behind a bunch of people. That seems to be the frustration um, right. I hear from people a lot of times in setting up CICD that I honestly kills some people. They're just like, it's not worth the, the trouble for me to like just get some tests running that maybe aren't super high value for me right now because I haven't built out my full test suite or um, you know what have you, or maybe I don't really need complicated builds right now and i'm just fine um using whatever i was doing before which is uh, somewhat why vagrant exists right i mean vagrant came, kind of came in and, and 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 essentially you didn't have to have that time you know that waiting for that that remote service you could yeah you build it you'd have to still build the automation locally but you could essentially build it those ephemeral environments right there on your on your laptop um Vagrant really isn't CI/CD, but can be used in a manual process. Um, but that kind of uh, was the solution to that to that problem. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's exactly what I talk to folks that are Lando users about these days, right? It's like, oh, hey, now I can just if I want to perfect my my test suite, right? I can just do it right here. Um, one of the cool things, actually, that I think I'm, I mean I'm guessing somebody at some point has done this with their you know their vagrant image, but uh, one of the cool things I think that people have been able to do with Lando is they actually deploy it literally onto Travis or Circle or another CI/CD provider, um, so they know that the entire build and everything will work and that they can actually test their builds dynamically locally without having to wait for a queue time. Um, so I feel like that's yeah that's definitely. Again, kind of going back to that idea, I think I misspoke in the beginning of this episode. I was I said continuous development um, instead of continuous deployment. But there is it's funny, like thinking back to that, like there is that aspect where you know local development or whatever development environment you use, having that ability to continuously be testing things, um, that's a huge part of CI/CD. Uh, even way before you get into the idea of having to integrate into another environment or deploy to your production environment. So we have this kind of second wave. Things are getting deployed into the cloud. They're not completely underneath our control necessarily anymore, although I think it's good to note that like both Travis and Circle have some enterprise options. So there's options to basically deploy their stack into your own infrastructure, depending on exactly how you need to do that. There's always limitations with these services. Um, so there's, yeah, and I, maybe actually, I, you know, Solomon, you work with customers that have a lot more specific needs. Uh, I don't know if you have any specific comments about some of those limitations that you've seen from, you know, enterprise customers or people with really in-depth security compliance needs where they were just not able to get to that place with Travis or Circle or another SaaS provider. And they had to, to come to you to help figure that out so they could fulfill that need. Yeah. You, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said compliance. A, a lot of the compliance frameworks really want the uh, the entire application, including its development lifecycle, to be within what we call the authorization boundary. Ooh, that sounds that sounds scary. The authorization boundary. Yes, I, I talk, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I talk about the authorization boundary a lot, but essentially, it's pretty simple when you really think about it. If you draw a circle around all the technologies that you use, and I'm really thinking about a network in a physical perspective, right? About all all of the um, the boundaries of, of the technologies you use, and then you start thinking about the data flows inside and outside of that boundary, then you can essentially start assessing your security profile. So let's say we just drew a very small authorization boundary again, around a single server in a production environment. Let's just make it really small for a, for a second. Then you would think, okay, anytime data left that, that could be information leak, right? Anytime data went into that, it's a potential compromise. There's two types of data that could come in, like, like API data, you know, or it could be an agent. It could be an, an active agent. But if you think about that 
from that perspective, actually committing code to do a deployment into that environment is a risk because the data, the code that you've written on the outside is potentially compromised. And so we'll talk a little bit about the solar winds and the Kaseya attacks, but the what we what we've noticed is this this um, we got really good at securing the production environment, we being the community. And so the attackers have had to say, okay, let's not attack the production environment. Let's attack what we call the supply chain. Let's attack before production. Well, the response to that is to broaden the definition of your authorization boundary. So now you're going to include your staging and your build environment inside your authorization boundary. And ultimately, you want to make that authorization boundary even larger where your development is secure and happening inside the authorization boundary. So imagine that your laptop is considered secure. And when you log into your laptop, you're entering secure space. And so you're, you know, your company may have policies of what network traffic that computer is allowed to have with the public internet so that that can be considered a secure space. Um, but the, where this comes from is the, the lack of compliance with Circle CI and Travis CI in terms of options. Now, obviously, you can install those on-prem. You can put them inside an authorization boundary. But online tools, whether it be Gitpod or, or you know, Travis CI or, or Circle CI, these are not within an authorization boundary. And until they have some kind of <clears throat> compliance offering, then that's considered outside. Even if there was a compliance offering, then you still have to create what we call interconnection agreements that essentially means that you trust that other provider to keep your code secure to the same standards that you yourself would. And so there, you know, that still becomes a liability. And, and so high trust environments, especially, but, but any compliant environment is looking to reduce the number of, of, of paths in inside and outside of the authorization boundary. So if you can draw that authorization boundary, make all your development happen within that authorization boundary, have all your CI CD within that authorization boundary, have the deploy happen into production within that authorization boundary, then you've minimized the number of sources that could come in and, and therefore you can have a higher degree of confidence that your code is not only securely developed, securely built, but also securely deployed. So in your mind, just the the fact that for the most part, any CICD deployment, or I should say any CICD installation that we're doing with Travis or with Circle, they're probably going to be on their platform. And that's right away, we're, we're way outside that authorization, authorization boundary. We're, you know, we're in, the, we're in no man's land. We're in the neutral zone or whatever. Um, I love authorization boundary just as a great name for something. It makes it sound very official and, uh, you know, Star Trekky, highly secure and and foreboding to enter and go through exactly. Yes. But uh, but essentially, I mean, how do you know that? How do you know that one deployment that for your project isn't somehow uh, in the same with some buffer overrun or something can't collect with somebody else's and and then some attacker used that to introduce code into yours? Right? You don't know that. And yeah. no matter how many design documents that they show. The point is, is if, there, if, if there's not a, client, a, a compliance authorization, that means they haven't been audited. And if they haven't been audited, it's just their word. And this is not to say that those tools aren't secure. I mean, I don't want to take – security and compliance are two different things. Compli com security is the things you do to make yourself secure. Compliance is essentially the, the fact that you've had someone audit and look at that and say you're doing what you said you're doing. Over the years, the things that have become very clear to me about both security and compliance, but compliance, I think I think you made a good you know good point. Those are two very distinct things. Compliance takes a lot of work, um, and that's work that you have to do, uh, but also that your providers have to do. And you know, obviously, if your provider is not willing to to do the work that you need them to do on the compliance side, then it's just not a fit. Maybe that's actually a good segue into thinking kind of about the last generation. What I think of as kind of being the modern generation of CI/CD tooling. Not to say that any of the tools we talked about beforehand are not modern, because I think there's even arguments for Jenkins, which is you know venerable in the the world of software, and it's been around for a long time. But it's not necessarily it can be used in a modern context. It's not necessarily out of date. 
per se. It just may not be the right tool because of some of the baggage it's bringing along. Um, and certainly the same, you know, tons of organizations using Travis and Circle and all sorts of other tools to great effect. So I don't, I don't want to like put any of those down. Um, but I think there has been kind of some new developments over the last couple of years as some of these um, SCM providers, so specifically GitHub and GitLab, and to uh, maybe a little bit lesser extent, but still really important um, extent, Atlassian with Bitbucket, uh, they've introduced CICD functionality into their products. And it, it's been super interesting to see this, like some very cool takes on CICD. I think one of the things that a lot of the developers I've worked with really have been interested in, um, you know, things like GitHub Actions has this ability to kind of like Jenkins has this huge open source ecosystem of different things that you can pull in to run tasks and do other functionality. GitHub Actions has community sourced actions where you can just access these huge libraries of other actions that people have written that you don't have to write yourself and you can tweak and just get off to the races really quick. I know that's been like, a, that's that's kind of a new concept and something that really shows the power of linking CICD in with an SEM provider that spans the globe as a network, you know, GitHub's like our social coding network in a way. So anyway, so that, you know, don't want to wax rhapsodic about that, but uh, it's definitely one of the things I think that's been super exciting uh, to the developers I've been talking to. But I think there's some other really exciting things that GitLab's doing that kind of dovetail into this conversation about security and compliance that I would be interested to get your take on Solomon. Because I think it has a really important role in this ecosystem that's distinct from what GitHub's doing. Yeah. So the first the first thing that makes us really excited about GitLab is the fact that you can install it on-prem. And that, again, talk about the authorization boundary before you can take GitLab and you can put it in, into the authorization boundary. The other thing is that they are really trying to attack the entire Sec DevOps workflow. And what I mean by that is they have you know issue management, they have um, SCM, they have the building and testing, you know, um, you know, CI/CD pipeline. Then they have capabilities for deploying, and then they're also working, especially in the Kubernetes and and, and containerization world, the idea of monitoring and and, and which is, takes you through the entire life cycle of operate and monitor, and and so that entire. I'm not sure if you've seen the Mobius loop that has those different steps. Um, you know, throughout the life cycle, they're really looking at that entire life cycle and saying that we want one tool that kind of takes the artifacts that you are developing, that the, the code that you're writing and all the artifacts that come from it and take it through that entire process. And with that mission, being able to put it on an application you can install within your authorization boundary. And with the, with the, the new security focus, that sec, you know, what we call sec DevOps or DevSecOps, however you want to to splice that. Um, with that new focus uh, from from GitLab, I think they're really attacking head on the problems that we're seeing actually in CI/CD right now. The CI, the problems we kind of solved. I know how to kit, commit. I know how to fork. I know how to clone. I know how to merge. Those problems. You know, you can have GitHub flow, you can have Git flow, you can have what you can pick your flow. But the point is, those problems have been solved. The next real problem around this is how do I secure the thing that I'm building and the artifacts coming from what I'm building? And so, both GitHub and and GitLab have uh, a real advantage here that they already have a, a good ecosystem. They have a bunch of people using their tool, and essentially, it's like they already have your code. Now, what can we do to that code to help? get it to where you want it to build the things you want and to and to secure it and test it. And so it's been definitely exciting, which is why we picked it, you know, for integration with Cascade um, a long time ago. And so we see, you know, for example, our our deployment model as really a, a wrapper around GitLab. And and we intend to even tighten that integration over time. GitLab doesn't do every GitLab and GitHub don't do everything well. For example, you know, how do you do a database deploy with with GitLab, right? And and the reason is that GitLab and GitHub, and this is like the downside of these tools versus a Jenkins. Jenkins is like, I don't care what action you're doing. And it could be related to code. Where GitLab and GitHub, it's more of like everything starts with a commit. Everything that action that happens is a pipeline built off of a commit. 
which has a very huge advantage, right? You just you just have you just created an audit log of what you're going to do before you did it. So there's a very I'm not trying to take away from that value, but if a person wants to go in and you know see certain things, they want to see the the performance, you know, of, of an application, or they want to move a database around, or if they want to move some files around, you know, CI/CD platforms that are based on a Git flow don't really work very well. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it can't be done, right? But now you're essentially telling that marketing person they've got to go write some code in order to make that happen. You can't give them a nice pretty button and hit push, you know, which is why we built Cascade. So Cascade integrates with GitLab. Let's GitLab do all the magic that it has, right? It, it, it can do issue management. It can do SCM. It can do this, the, the testing, the sec DevOps testing does that great. Cascade comes in and solves the problem of how can I now manage that production environment move databases around, do a deploy, uh, that type of thing. So we were really excited even when the Git, when the Drupal community decided to pick GitLab. Um, and we weren't part of that decision, but when we heard about it, we were like, good choice. We already made it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're already there, and uh, it's a great choice. Yeah, it's it's been fascinating to watch this happen. And I, I so just trying to break apart a couple of things you've been saying, because I think there's some really important points uh, in what you're talking about. Sec DevOps. DevSecOps, not to be confused with TripleSecOps, that's what you did in college. This whole concept, I think the way that you've described this to me in the past is the shift of security left. Um, And I don't know if you want to unpack that a little bit, because I think that's a super important way to think about this for developers who may not be thinking about it. And this may actually be a good time, too, to talk about some of the exploits that have happened recently that... Um, are kind of kind of scary in the ways they've exploited uh, some of the more developer proximate pieces of the of the pipeline. Yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier that authorization boundary, right? And I said we got pretty good, and I'm not saying perfect. But we got pretty good at securing the production environment, and so the attackers the attackers have shifted left. And so if the attackers are shifting left, then I mean security needs to needs to shift left. But shift left is just just to make sure that like I'm representing this correctly. You're talking about like the the shift towards the developer towards the the beginning of the development process, right? That's this is where attacks are coming more and more now. Correct. And I was about to say that you know what what let's just start with DevOps. What did what did DevOps do? Well, we used to have this development team, and we had our operations team, right? And so the development team, they were in the you know the dark room creating the creating the the uh, the intellectual property, if you will. And that, that got pumped out and given to the operations team. And many times your security team was on that operations team, right? They were further in the process. And so you kind of had a gate right before production. You had a gate, and that was security. And so the developers, they weren't writing secure code. They weren't writing in a secure environment. But they would hand that off to security to give a blessing, and then it would go to production. And that that security step could be you know, documentation reviews, it could be code reviews, it could be, you know, scans against an app, a running version of the application. It could be a number of different things. And then they would hand that off to production. And so as that attack has shifted left, right, now the attacker is essentially attacking before security would have got involved in that, in that model. And so what we have to do when I say shift left, it's essentially saying, all right, we used to think of dev and ops as two different you know, steps when we when we when we started doing DevOps, which means that we're we're really looking about cross-functional teams, developers and operations people kind of working together. And obviously, containers is a huge piece of this, right? I mean, containers by definition shifts the management of an application from your system administrators to your developers. Your system administrators can't get into the container. Well, they can they can log in, but they can't they can't change the way that that application runs. If they need to change memory limits or things like that, they have to send that back to the developers, right? So, if the management of that application is in in a DevOps scenario is moving left and by left towards the developers, and the administration of those applications is moving left, then we need to take security left too, right? Because that that the responding to those issues are, is happening earlier in the process. But the other value that it provides is the quicker release cycle. So instead of thinking, I'm going to work for six months, and then I'm going to get the security report, and now I have to make a decision, how many of these bugs am I going to fix? How many of these security issues am I going to fix before my deadline runs out? <laughs> instead of thinking like that, you can essentially say, all right, 
every time a security issue happens, I'm fixing it right then. And that way, when I give it, you know, to the ready to, to push to production, it's already secure. It's already been tested. It already we already know security doesn't have to do any security's not going to find anything out that we already didn't know. And it, this helps decrease the uh, the time it takes from uh, from development to to release. It's fascinating when we talk about DevOps. You know, you're talking about all these different things that we basically now shifted left. All this additional responsibility that's now on the developer in a lot of ways. Um, that I think if you go back in time, wasn't necessarily there. And I think security to me is the scariest one is definitely the one that's, you know, it's in the news now, you know, we've had so many of these different incidences that are specifically linked to more developer proximate concerns now. Right. So for example, let's take SolarWinds. So they have a network management system. Obviously network management has access to a lot of network devices and uh, their build environment wasn't inside the authorization boundary. Let me just say it that way. Um, I don't know what it officially was or wasn't, but the point is their build environment was compromised. A, a bad actor was able to log in into their build process and inject malicious code into one of the DLLs that was being distributed by SolarWinds. Well, everybody as a good security citizen had automated updates running. In other words, that DLL just got distributed everywhere. And uh, I think it was like about two weeks that SolarWinds had it timed, uh, sorry, that the attacker had it timed, that the thing was benign for about two weeks. And after two weeks, it, it came alive and essentially started pinging back to a control server, which now that that has been distributed to 18,000 customers, which each one of those, that tool again is managing networks, right? It's not managing just one machine. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a network management software. Now you have eighteen thousand customers who have some system that's reaching out to, you know, with a beacon asking, "What do you want me to do?" <laughs> and of course, at that point, the attacker can, can can give anything. But the lesson we learn from that is, your CI/CD, your build platform, is important, right? It's it, that's part of what needs to be secured. Related, and it's not an ex, it's not a topic I'm an expert on yet, but the concept of digital code signing is is, is something to keep your eye mm, on. Um, yeah, essentially, if the developer signs that piece of code, then we should be able to see in production that there was nothing that happened, you know, between the the, the developer and the end. That there there are artifacts, but each artifact is signed by a process. And if any person were, were to get into that process, then we would have we'd have evidence of that tampering. So uh, code signing could have absolutely helped in this process. But again, just putting the build environment inside of, of the authorization boundary. So SolarWinds is a, is a good example. It's a really good example of, of why dev shops especially should be thinking about doing their development and they're putting their CI CD inside a secure environment. That's not to say that we, you shouldn't use Circle CI and Travis CI and some of these others. Circle CI, like you said earlier, has a uh, deployment that can be done inside the boundary, a, a hosted version. So I'm not trying to take your tools from you, <laughs> but but at the same time, you know, starting to think about do you really have control on that boundary? So so that that's a good example. The Kaseya attack was a little bit different. So I'm not sure if you. Or your listeners have had like an update server that's sitting out there that that you're pulling updates from. Um, well, the update server happened to be uh, publicly accessible, and it had a zero day exploit, meaning that nobody knew about it. But the hackers obviously knew how to use that vulnerability to get in, and they were able to attack these update servers. They call them the VSA servers, and a li literally one million end clients received a ransomware attack in less than five minutes. Again, because everybody had automatic updates turned on. Um, <laughs> the lesson again there is, and this is a harder lesson. This is a harder lesson. You know, we've been taught in, in you know, best security practices forever, always apply the latest security updates. Right. And now I have to worry that my security updates are the attack. And so I don't necessarily have an answer for this one. I mean, the easiest one is to think in terms of make sure that, that your, your update server is within your boundary and that you know that you have some process of reviewing those updates. 
But it, it really is, is a difficult one because do I tell you, you know, don't apply security updates right away and allow everybody else to find out that it's broken first before you take your updates live? Or do I tell you to take it live and um, accept the risk? Uh, this is a hard one. Um, I personally think that this is where some judgment needs to come in, into play. So if you're hearing about this big critical vulnerability, then you probably want to take that live quickly. But if someone is able to compromise a system and push out a critical update that you haven't been notified, doesn't have a CSV, it doesn't have all of these other things, then you probably shouldn't be. And so I think there's some changes that has to be done in some of our automation you know, pipelines and the way we think about that to kind of ver verify independently that those updates, those security updates are actually validated by a third party, right? That it's not just the person releasing the update and you're just blindly accepting it. And like I said, I don't have a I don't have a full answer for that yet. I'm not sure if anyone has a full answer for it yet. I think we're in a very interesting time uh for security. And we're only a few months. I mean this was this was June, July, right? So we're only a few months into this. Um but it does bring into the to the question, we call it the, the supply chain, right? You have to suspect your supply chain. And on a very, um, I'll just make this really real for every Drupal developer out there. When you, you know, are use Composer to pull in some, some PHP packages, how do you know that that package that you found that someone threw up onto, you know, onto, you know, the update server, how do you know that, that doesn't have a backdoor in it? I mean, think about the requests module in, 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 in Node, right? There's so much is done in that. What if, what if a bad actor put in the, you know, some backdoor that some string on any website immediately bypassed all security and allowed you in? And you just blindly updated your site because you saw that there was an update. You know, that to me, that's really scary. No, I mean, it, it, it sends shivers down my spine these days. And it's like, uh, I think the thing that, that creeps me out the most, I mean, I'm sure you've seen way more of this, but like I, I we always had this assumption, I think, as the open source community that peer review, the fact that tons of people are looking and using looking at and using these pieces of code would prevent these types of attacks from happening. And that mutual trust was that other check that we all kind of knew who each other were, um, you know, prominent contributors are pretty well known. You kind of trust them, but we've seen now that, you know, you can slip in really devastating attacks very easily and surreptitiously. Uh, I think that's the thing that scares me is just how, like that, how these checks really are not suited, um, to the types of attacks that we're, we're seeing and that like, we have to have, you know, we have to have some deeper solutions to these problems. Um, so, um, yep. And so th this is where this concept of a software bill of materials, I'm not sure if you've heard of that phrase, but that's another of the big things. So I, I talked about code signing, but the concept of a software bill of materials was also included in Biden's executive order. I think it was back in May that essentially each piece of software that you deploy needs to have a listing of all of the components with it and that each one of those components needs to also be Valid. You can't just take any open source project and include it in because it is a risk. And so we're seeing that codes between code signing and the concept of a software bill of materials, um, that this kind of addresses the problem. And for those that don't haven't heard that term, let me be more specific. In your composer, every time every one of your includes, that's another piece of software that you're including in. And so there's some things that you need to know about that include that essentially means that you trust it, right? And so you can say, you know, is it, are you just pulling this from, you know, some random website or is this, you know, package, do you trust the people behind the package? And, and, and you know, over time, there's going to be more and more security wrapped around this such that um, not any package can be used, right? There's certain packages that are, that are trusted and certain packages that are not trusted. But again, that software bill of materials is essentially just having a documented list of all of your includes, where they came from, are they trusted, et cetera. And when you start thinking, you talked about that mutual trust and, you know, one of the things that you can look at, you know, how many people are working on the project? I've been on projects before. Well, I've committed changes to projects before where the developer was a single developer. He had full control and yet he wasn't mentally engaged on that project. Not, yeah. not that he's just too busy, right? He has plenty of other things that was part of a previous job, 
So what does he do? Someone is begging for this fix. He accepts the merge request, and he's done with it. And so he doesn't necessarily review it. And so we talked about you know that peer review, but the peer review isn't happening on that. So looking at the number of people engaged on the project, how much peer review is actually happening? I, I used that request module example earlier. I, I haven't looked into this specifically, but I bet you that there's more than one person doing reviews on that. Whether it's after the fact or before the fact, I can't tell you, but that is a way too high profile of a module for a lot of eyes not to be on, right? But you don't need to have a high profile module to be the one that's um, that's compromised. You just right. need something small, right? And it's it's those type of things that uh, that I mean, if I can give you another little suggestion, or your, your listeners another suggestion is do a review. This is like a, this is like a little tiny step. Do a review of all the packages that you're including, and anything that is being used by just a very small number of people or a very small number of of of, of active participants in the process. Maybe not let those go to production. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. use that in a dev environment. Use use that in other, but maybe don't let those get to production, um, because the honest truth is you don't you don't trust it yet. Alternately, and I think this is just as valid. We recommend, and it really is part of the federal requirements. Federal requirements is that every change of code that you made make needs to be reviewed. So we talk about this concept of a thin repo and a thick repo. The thin repo being just a little tiny bit of code you're working on, but the thick repo is all the other code of all of the included packages also being added to the repository. And you can set that up in your CI CD pipeline. But we recommend that you do a code review on your thick repo. Now, I probably just made a lot of people say that that's just impossible. It's way too much. But Again, this take this what I just said and then combine that with what I just said about your small projects, right? Maybe the requests module you'll have some faith in because there's a community behind it. But that little package that has just a couple people working on it, why do you why do you it's just a small amount of code, right? Why does that need to have a lot of active change? It's probably a very small amount of code, it has a small use case. Maybe do a peer review on that yourself. And that way, you know, you become the next set of eyes instead of the, the group that was just one person, right? And so you be, you you essentially provide that next level of, of peer review. And yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I um, and this might be kind of a good a good point to to leave off on. You know, a lot of what you're saying is we need to take a lot more responsibility over every step of the development process. But we need as developers, we need to be thinking a lot about where we're developing, how we're developing, what we're including, uh, you know, how we're doing builds, what we're using to do builds, all these different things that we never really thought about before because we just thought it was taken care of for us. We have to we have to now think about. Uh, but I think you also were outlining uh, beyond just individual developer responsibility and team, really team responsibility. It's always the team is the functional unit here. Um, you were outlining these really great tools we now have that are integrating in with the entire development process. Um, and like, you know, this kind of goes beyond in my mind, CICD, but it's integral to enabling CICD in a security first world where we have to be considering this. Um, you know, we can't just leave it to, uh, an, a quarterly review or something. It has to be in our continual development process, um, to be effective, to allow us to do CICD. Um, so maybe like the, the last question I ask you is like, what do you see for the future? Do you feel like, do you feel like right now you're, you're counseling people to take more individual responsibility as developers, but that maybe these tool sets will allow us to, to relax a little bit more in the future and, and they'll be able to enable us to get back to the world. Maybe that we were used to five years ago where we were a little less worried about, what vulnerabilities might be in our our packages and these other security concerns and more just worried about programming applications because frankly that's what I like doing I don't know about like everyone that's listening to this but that's the piece of web development I like is worrying about building an application not having to worry about oh what might be in this given package or that um, every step of the way I mean, that, that's a good point I mean, when you were talking about how, earlier about how the developer has so many new responsibilities they're now they're now public cloud experts they're now container experts they're they're essentially infrastructure in the new world 
you know, way of thinking things. And now we're telling these people that they also all have to be security experts can be daunting, right? And so that's really the value of CICD. And what I mean, and I'll explain that you can essentially contract out or get help or, or find a way to get someone to help build you that CICD pipeline. And then you just go back to developing. Now that we have that, and it does shift it left because essentially whenever you commit code, and I'll talk about, I'll be more specific in a second here of the types of tests, but now when you commit code, you're getting an immediate feedback. Oh, there's a security issue. Here's the line. Here's why. Go fix that, right? A developer can do that. He might not know all of the other pieces of the, of the CICD pipeline. Not that he can't. A lot of developers are great and smart. But why, why does every person have, have to relearn that, right? It's a pattern. And this is why GitLab has really tried to focus on this. They have this thing that they're trying to call auto DevOps, where if you enable that, it does a bunch of the security testing without you having to even do anything to your project. Now, there's, there's limitations. It can only do but so much. It can look in your code for, for passwords. We call that secret detection. It can look at your dependencies, Auto scan that to see if there's any known vulnerabilities. It can do SAST, it's static analysis of your of your of your code, so it can look and see are there some patterns like you know you know running something off the end of an array, a buffer off the end of an array, or it can, it can look and say are right, these are some bad patterns, go fix that. So there's certain things that it can do, but there's also things that it can't do, and and so um, it, it does require you know someone who has the expertise in setting it up. But GitLab is really focused on building that pipeline out, that it can it can take care of a lot of those steps for you. And obviously, for some people, they're just going to jump right in and, and figure out how to, how to set it all up. But that's something that we advise our customers on. Hey, let us work and build that pipeline for you. Let us set up that for you. So you can focus on what you do best. You, you focus on code, and we're, we'll help you. And as you grow, we'll grow. As you find new things you um, want to be added, we'll do that. As we find more things that are our best practices, we'll deliver them back to you. And we can kind of be the ones thinking about these issues so that you don't have to. And um, it's obviously important for everybody to be thinking about security. But the truth is, is when you have a, fault, you know, a small developer shot of two or three people, one of them's doing billing and new sales and writing some code on the side. The other person's worried about, you know, setting up their local dev and infrastructure and all this. And, you know, security is sometimes the last thing we think about. And it's also security is called insurance many times, right? Security is like insurance. You don't need it until you need it. <laughs> right. And so when, I mean, it's, it's an investment. It's an investment into the what if. But honestly, if you get... Um, if an event, if event happens against you, that's the end, right? I mean, your, yeah. your reputation is shot. Your customer's reputation is shot. And so, um, you know, there's, <laughs> there was a, I won't, I won't say the name, but there was a company a few years back who had no DR solution separated from a permissions perspective from their online SaaS application. A hacker logged in, asked for a million dollars or two million. I forget what they asked for. The company didn't give it to them. And the hacker just went ahead and deleted everything. There was no, there was no backups. The backups were deleted. And the company put up a website essentially saying, we no longer exist. All of our intellectual, intellectual property is gone. We have no, nothing to restore to. And the point is that just took, that took, that took, you know, some people's livelihood right away, right? I mean, they've been right. working probably ten years on this, you know, this idea on this company, and it, in, in, in a blink, it's gone. Nothing to roll back to. You know, if they had done a few more security-based, um, you know, things, then everybody might complain and say, "I want access to that. Why you? Why do you make me have role-based access control? Why can't everybody have access to everything?" Um, a number of the things we haven't even talked about today that are part of a secure environment from a access control and from um, logging and a bunch of other stuff that's important, but um, I'm sure we'll have fun at some point uh, diving exactly. deep into that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, the, the point is, is we want to come along customers and essentially help them set up the things that we're learning. Um, we call it SAS, that's static application security testing, DAS, dynamic application security testing, 
IAST and RASP are not are things that are are kind of like the leading edge. Not a lot of customers are doing that. Um, but there's also dependency scanning, curated dependencies. I talked about um, thick repos versus thin repos. I mean, this is th- this is what we love to do. This is what we get excited about. And so, um, you know, people that you know want to work with us, um, we kind of can kind of show them. Right, here's what we've set up for you. And here's the feedback you're going to get. And here's, you know, every commit you do, here's what you get. Every time you merge, this is what you get. Every time you um, deploy to production, here's what you're going to want to, you know, verify before you've gone to production. We can help build that process for customers in a repeatable way. I mean, this doesn't have to be something that that has to be done for every single project. Once it's set up, if, if your projects, we've talked about that, you know, documentation, standardization, and, and automation, right? That, we talked about that earlier. Um, if your patterns can be documented and we can standardize them, then we can create those automation patterns that you just plug that, that piece in and it, it kind of uh, repeats the process. And I know I've, I've spoken this in a little, some high terms, but that's ultimately what we want is customers to be able to work fast, get back to development. And that, but they have all this feedback from the security testing. Enable enable continuous improvement. Uh, integrate security into CI/CD. Uh, that's good. That gives me hope for the future, which is probably a, a good note to end on. Is that there is hope? Uh, developers at some point will be able to go back to just focusing on developing applications and being able to have you know wonderful CI/CD processes that allow them to just do that and deploy seamlessly. Yeah, um, I don't want to take away, this is the last comment, I don't want to take away from GitHub and and Travis and Circle and Jenkins even for the plugins that you can add with security there. It's all about the approach, right? And so um, that there's there's definitely automated things you can just click of a button, you know, it's enabled on GitHub um, for certain security things like dependency scanning. Um, really great services by those solutions. So again, the, the the little thing I said at the beginning: start small, continue improve, improvement. If I can just say those two things, if you can do something better than what you're doing today, spend a few hours, whatever, do that. It's going to make the, the world uh, more automated from from a CI/CD perspective, and, and most importantly, from my perspective, is is that security aspect. Um, and obviously, if customers want something more than that, we're here. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much, Solomon, for uh, for stopping by again and uh, giving us some more downloads here on CICD and going further into the Sec DevOps world. I think that's a, a new topic for a lot of folks that uh, is becoming really, really important. So huge thank you. Um, and we'll hope to see you on an episode coming up here soon, I'm sure. Sounds good. It's always uh, fun to talk to you and the tandem team. Thanks, Solomon. Absolutely. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to DevQuest. If you like the episode, do us a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform, as it will help folks find us. You can find the show, including show notes and links to our work, at devquest.lando.dev. Consider sponsoring Lando on Patreon at patreon.com slash devwithlando, so we can continue to build the best open source developer tool belt in the galaxy and bring you more podcast episodes like this one. If you have a question or a story you'd love to tell, you can contact us at podcast at lando.dev. Until next time, dev well, friends. 